All right, we're ready to get started. Let's grab our Bibles into John chapter 4. Take your Bibles and stand for the reading of God's Word. If you don't have a Bible, get one. Verse 21 of chapter number 4. We'll read a little bit of context, but we're going to really drill down on verse 21. There's a debate going on between this woman at the well and Jesus. She says in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. To which Jesus responds by saying, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, referring to the one that she spoke about, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But, verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is a spirit. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Lord God, bless our time together in your word this morning. Help me, O oh God, to be an exceptionally good teacher this morning. Communicate truth well. In Jesus' name, amen. So there is no doubt that the dogmatic, the overarching, the big message of this text is worship, worship, worshipers, Worship, 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 and worship. There's no doubt. That's what the text is talking about. But I want to drill down this morning on just three words. I want to focus us this morning on this nor in Jerusalem. This is shocking. Not to us, but to them. Imagine that all you've done your entire life is went to Jerusalem to offer worship. You've went four or five times a year. It has been part of your life from being a small boy. You've made pilgrimages after pilgrimages to the temple to offer sacrifices. And suddenly, somebody dares saying to you that that's coming to an end. That's stopping. That this is no longer going to be the case. That you will not go to Jerusalem to worship the Father. Jesus is responding to a first century argument concerning the elevated status of Jerusalem and more specifically the temple as the center of worship which includes offerings and sacrifices for the world, for the true people of God. And Jesus is saying all that is coming to an end. It's huge. So these three words, nor in Jerusalem... How significant are they? Am I drilling down too much on this statement? Judge for yourself. Nor in Jerusalem. Nor in Jerusalem. I want to know, is this temporary? Or is this a permanent change? Temporary? 
Jesus is giving this woman a warning order. We know what a warning order. A warning order is an advanced notification of something. She's saying that he's saying to her, worship in Jerusalem at the temple with animal sacrifices is coming to an end. Why? Why is it coming to an end? What, Jeff? Yeah, because he becomes the ultimate, perfect, final sacrifice. And Jesus is suggesting that this is over. This is to an end. So now for a moment, I want to show you how we can use the word dispensation, because we've had several sermons about dispensations. How can we use that word theologically correct? Well, let me give you an example. The death and resurrection of Christ Jesus brought an end to the dispensation of worshiping Yahweh through animal sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. So that dispensation is over, and Jesus is going to start a new dispensation. All right, what would that new dispensation look like? He inaugurated a new dispensation whereby those who are born again, are you? Those who are born again, they will worship God in spirit and truth. They will do it in and through the Holy Spirit. Instead of animal sacrifices, they will issue to God spiritual sacrifices. And they will have no concern for, number one, geography. Number two, physical structures. And number three, what? Holy days. No pilgrimages. No jettisoning to Jerusalem. Can you worship the Lord seven days a week? Yes or no, church? Do you have to only say, well, this is a special day, and so I need to worship God on this day, but I can neglect him the other days? No. How about geography? Is there a single place where we worship God in the world today? Do we need a physical structure, or could we go to a park as a church and worship the Lord just as well at a park? Absolutely. So is this a giant change? It's huge. It's nearly impossible for us to understand how significant this is. This pitiful chart will maybe help me understand that. In the old, it's in Jerusalem. Now, it's anywhere. In the old, it's at the temple or tabernacle. Now, believers are the temple of God. In the past, there were holy days. Now, it's all days or any day. In the past, it was the Passover. It's now the Lord's Supper. And it's not for atonement. It's a memorial. In the past, in the Old Covenant, the concern was circumcised males. In the New Covenant, the concern is no longer physical circumcision, but a circumcision of your heart. Have you been born again? In the Old Covenant, in the Old Covenant sacrifices were offered how often? Over and over and over. John, it'd be nearly impossible to estimate how many sacrifices were offered over all those years. You move to the New Covenant, and Hebrews says, once for all. In the Old Covenant, it was the blood of goats and calves. In the New Covenant, it's the blood of the eternal Son of God. In the Old Covenant, it was physical sacrifices. In the New Covenant, it's spiritual sacrifices. 
In the old covenant, the high priest died, and there was another one, and another one, and another one. Our final perfect high priest lives forever. In the old covenant, you had to be a Levite. Today, all believers are priests. So at this moment, can you all see how we can say that a dispensational change has occurred? The way God deals with people has now changed. His focus was on Israel. His focus was on a temple. His focus was on physical sacrifices. Now it's all people everywhere through spiritual sacrifices in and through Christ Jesus. This is a giant change. This legitimately is a dispensational change brought about by the inauguration and ratification of the new covenant by the death of Christ. And that's why we have old on the left side, new on the right side, and right in the middle is a cross to remind us that Jesus' death inaugurated a new covenant. So at this point, you would think that the evangelical church would have a universal agreement on this dispensational change from the old covenant to the new covenant. But we don't. And I want to talk about that so that you know the differences. Why is it important for me to pause and talk about things like this? How many of you have access to the internet? Please raise your hand. Everyone. I mean, kids are raising their hands, right? (laughs) And with that access to the internet gives you access to a plethora of theological websites. And this requires then that you become what? Discerning. Yeah. Because you're going to see everything that's out there. There's no editor out there anymore. Anybody can set up a blog. Anybody can set up a website. There's literally no theological editorial board whatsoever. Anyone in this congregation who elevate themselves up to be an author and have a site in a matter of minutes on a website. And people could be reading your good stuff or your not so good stuff. And so we as a church must understand what's out there and what we need to think about it. So Everyone doesn't agree that we're in the new covenant. Some teach that the new covenant is for ethnic national territorial Israel only and not the church. There isn't universal agreement that this is the last dispensation before the new heaven and the new earth. There are many out there on the websites and on the internet and study Bibles that believe that there's a whole nother dispensation to come. And there's different options as to how the new covenant relates to that dispensation. Either it is in that dispensation or it's not in that dispensation. And if it's not in that dispensation, then we need another covenant. And what covenant's that going to be if it's not the new covenant? Let's go back in time. Let's do a little backwards movement. The tabernacle was the first physical structure that God communicated where he would dwell and be with his people. Then you know that we transitioned to Solomon's temple right here. Solomon's temple. And Solomon asked God to dwell in the temple. And what did God say? What did God say when Solomon asked him to dwell in the temple? He said he would do it. And the glory of the Lord dwelt in that temple... Until, of course, it was destroyed by the Babylonians. And then Ezra sets up a new temple. Do you remember this? Ezra sets up a new temple. And what did all the old people that remember Solomon's temple do? What did they do? They cried. They weeped. 
And what did the young people do? They rejoiced because why? They had a temple. It was exciting that they had a, a temple, a, a finally a place to be. And then Herod decides to really endear himself to the Jews, and so he builds a bigger temple. Jesus shows up in John chapter 1, and what did we learn in John chapter two, 1 with that word dwell? What did we learn about that word? It was the same as the word tabernacle, only it was a verb. And so now here's Jesus, or a picture of Jesus, we should say, and Jesus is tabernacling amongst us. And then the apostle Paul says, what do we become, church? We are the temple of the living God. Do You see the movements that happened. And this morning, if you're born again, if you're saved, what are you? You are the temple of God. You are. That means you don't have to go to a particular place to worship the Lord. You can literally worship the Lord wherever you're at because you are the temple of God. This is a remarkable change. This would have been inconceivable to any Jew that they were the temple of God. So many things, let's be honest this morning, so many things we simply take for granted. Take for granted. Because we've been the temple of God our whole lives. We can't imagine not being the temple of God and becoming the temple of God. We, we grow up with these things and we lose sight of how significant the change is. Now, there's another temple in the Bible that we don't have agreement on. And this is Ezekiel's temple. Ezekiel's temple. And it's called Ezekiel's temple because all that we know about this temple is found in the book of Ezekiel. Chapters 40 through 48 describe this city and this temple. How many have read this before? I mean, it's good reading, right? I mean, it's exciting. You read about foot after foot after foot, measurement after. Come on, let's be honest. I mean, it's what you look forward to on your Monday morning devotions. More of Ezekiel. Do you hear the sarcasm? We did a Wednesday night Bible study on Ezekiel. It was painful. Let's just be honest. It's okay to say that there are some books of the Bible that are more exciting to read than other books of the Bible. That's okay to say that. We don't have to pretend like that's not the case. This is hard stuff. You've read chapters 41 and 42 and you go, what was I supposed to get out of that this morning? Well, let's talk about what's there. Let's take a moment to just do a quick survey of what's in the chapter. Chapter 40 introduces this new temple with special rooms for slaughtering sacrifices. That sounds exciting. There are inside and outside measurements of the temple in chapter 41. I'll show you some of that in a little bit. There are chambers for the priests and outside measurements of the temple in chapter 42. The glory of Yahweh returns to the temple and sin offerings for atonement in chapter number 43. And we're curious about that word atonement. In chapter 44, there's a prince he never gets a name, and we're not sure who that prince is. And there are Levitical priests, but only from Zadok. They have to be a descendant of Zadok. There's sacred land and contributions to the sacrifices for atonement. In chapter 46, there's the temple with burnt offerings. In chapter 47, we read about a living, giving, life-giving river, leaves for healing, and lots of land borders. Then in chapter 48, we receive, read about the tribal allotments. And then finally, we end the chapter with this 
unique reference. And it says the name of the city is Yahweh is there. Or the Lord is there. Let me give you some perspective. This is the map on the screen. And for those of you that are listening on the audio, I have the road Rayford down at the bottom. This is Skybo Road right up here. We know Skybo. There's the Chick-fil-A, holy spot for Christians. <laughs> and, then, and then this is the All-American Highway right here leading to Fort Liberty right here. I got it right. And then across here is our border. This is Coles right here, and here's BJ's. That gives you some perspective. All right, why are you showing us this, Pastor Sean? This is the size of the city right here. This is the size of the city in Ezekiel. 1.5 miles by 1.5 miles. It's a total of six miles in perimeter. Is that a big area, church? Is that a big area? Would you all consider that a large area? No. No, I wouldn't either. All right, what do you think the red square is? That is the size of the temple. That is the size of Ezekiel's temple. Let me drill down and show it to you. So here's a top-down view of our plot of land that we own as a church. Here's our soccer field right here. This is the parking lot that Manna uses right here that we sold to them a while ago, this little bit of area. And that tiny little bit is all that's Manna's. The rest is all ours. And that's the size of the temple. It's 875 feet in length with... It's a square. That's the physical structure right there. So that's the city, the size of the city, and that's the temple. Is that a huge bit building? Would that be a gigantic building? Like a stadium kind of size or smaller than a stadium? What do you think? Smaller, yeah. Yeah, it'd definitely be smaller than a stadium. All right, let me give you some perspective. Here's the city of David. Here's the city of David. Based on all the archaeological evidence, it's 12 acres. 12 acres a lot. No. Here's Ezekiel's city. 960 acres. Now, there's the thing that I want you to pay attention to. You grew up in a city that had 12 acres. That was the city. Is that a big city, 12 acres? Is that a big city? No. Because we just noticed here... That the next city, which you saw a minute ago, and you said that was a small city. Let me go back up here to make sure that you are tracking what I'm saying here. This is Ezekiel City. That's a tiny area. Do we agree that that's a tiny area right there? Okay. And that area is 960 acres. So 12 acres would be the city of David. Y'all getting, getting some perspective or not? So if you grew up in the city of David and you read about a city that was 80 times larger, would that be a big city? All right, let me, I did the math this morning. I wish I had a slide, but I was doing, John, driving in, I was thinking about this. So I Googled the city of Fayetteville. It's 150 square miles, 150 square miles. 80 times the city of Fayetteville is 1,200 square miles, or the equivalent of the state of Rhode Island. I, this is what I'm trying to get you to see. John, you grew up in the city of Fayetteville, and you heard about the city of Rhode Island. 
not the state of Rhode Island, the city of Rhode Island, would that be a huge change for you? Perhaps the change in numbers is not meant to be literal, but to show you the magnification of the city of God. 80 times larger. I, how many have been to Rhode Island before? How many have? Only a handful. Okay. Imagine driving in the south corner there from New York, uh, Connecticut rather, from Connecticut, and you drive all the way through to Boston, and it's been one large city. No rural areas, just one That's Okay, here's some perspective. The city of New York is 300 square miles. The city of New York is 300 square miles. This would be four times the size. This is a huge city. Why are you telling, all, why are you telling us this? Why do you want us to get this? Perhaps the measurements weren't meant to be taken literal. Perhaps they were to get you thinking of the difference in size, the, the magnification of how big this is, how gigantic this is. This temple was huge compared to any temple they knew about, gigantic compared to Ezra's temple, larger than anything they could imagine. But let's be honest. This size right here would not be large enough for the entire world to worship in as the center of worship for Yahweh. Not even close for the entire world to worship in. So remember, what we're dealing with is literal, normal, plain, original idea. This dispensationalist that I read this week said, whenever we come to a prophetic passage, our commitment must be to understand that passage according to the accepted laws of language and not to seek some mystical or figurative interpretation. And this is what we're arguing about. This is why the church does not have universal agreement. Because when we come to a scripture, we're trying to figure out, is this a literal scripture or is there figurative language? The psalm that Mike read this morning, Elder Mike read, was there any figurative language in there? The entire psalm was figurative language. It was all figurative language. And there's lots of the Bible like that. Let me give you an example. Here we are in Ezekiel 34. And you read on your morning devotions, then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. He will feed them, he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And you say to yourself, I am so glad that God's going to resurrect David. Hello? Would that be a right conclusion? Would that be a good conclusion? I'm so thankful God's going to resurrect King David and he'll be our shepherd. Sam, you say no. Paul, you say no. Where are you all getting these no's from? Bible says right there. Who is it? Who is it? Uh, who? Where'd you get that from? Where'd you get that idea from? Oh, the line of, Oh, you're talking about the book of Matthew or the book of Mark or one of the New Testament books or one of the many places where Jesus is called to David or the son of David. Jesus is called shepherd. But what if you don't use your New Testament? 
What if you decide that you're only going to use the literal interpretation of the text? Then what? Then you're wrong. Exactly. So you have to use the New Testament to understand this. So in this case, David is a figurative representation of who? Of Christ. Of Jesus. So how should I understand David and Ezekiel? What is the plain, literal, normative or original use of David? Well, it's David. Should the New Testament influence my understanding of who David is? Yes or no? Yes. Absolutely it should. If a resurrected King David is going to be the prince of a future physical temple in Jerusalem for 1,000 years, why does the New Testament go out of its way to connect Jesus to David? Let me stop for a minute. Congregation, do you agree that the New Testament goes out of its way to connect David to Jesus, Jesus to David? Yes or no? Sure, Matthew 1.1. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. Right away. And it goes on and on with that perspective. So in chapter 45, in verse 17, these are the words we read. It shall be the prince's duty to furnish burnt offerings, grain offerings, drink offerings, at the feast, the new moons, and the Sabbaths, all the appointed peace for the house of Israel. He shall provide the sin offering, the grain offering, the burnt offering, the peace offering to make atonement on behalf of the house of Israel. Here's the question I want to ask you. Is this Prince David or is this Prince Jesus? I'll leave it with you. You decide. Is a resurrected David coming back to occupy this spot for a thousand years? What kind of language is this? Are we really making atonement? Think about what I'm saying. In Mark chapter number 12, verse 33, Jesus says to us, Jesus does. He says, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and with to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. If that's what Jesus says, why are we going back to offering sacrifices? In chapter number 10 of Hebrews 6, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. How do we reconcile these two ideas? Pastor Sean, why are you teaching us this? Because literally nearly every Bible website that you go to has one perspective and doesn't even deal with the other perspectives. It's as though there isn't a second view out there, John. There's one idea, wholly accepted. There is a coming thousand years, bloody sacrifices. Here we come again. How do you hold up the New Testament in this hand and bloody sacrifices in this hand when Christ atoned for the sins of humanity, how many times? Once for all. I'm trying to expose you to more information so that you can be discerning, church. Look how Paul uses this information. Even if I am to be poured out as a, what's he say? A drink offering. So Paul is talking about his death as a what? As a drink offering. 
In fact, in 2 Timothy 4, 6, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, the time of my departure has come. So what if for just a moment, let me just speculate. Let's just momentarily speculate. What if this is a prophecy about Jesus being the ultimate burnt offering, grain offering, drink offering, the culmination of all feasts, the inheritance of all the new moons. He is the ultimate Sabbath and makes the perfect atonement for all. In other words, here's what I'm suggesting for a moment. What if this is not meant to be taken literally? What if this is the description of the ultimate and final offering in every sense? He's the perfect grain offering. He's the perfect drink offering. He's the perfect all sin offering. He is the ultimate atonement making individual for not just the house of Israel, but for humanity as a whole. What if I'm not supposed to be reading this in a literal sense? What if I'm supposed to be contending or thinking about or contemplating the idea that this might be figurative language for all that Jesus does on the cross for the house of Israel and ultimately for us? Just some ideas to contemplate. Does Ezekiel's temple bring an end to the words, nor in Jerusalem, nor worship in spirit and in truth? I have a chart on the screen, Bill. I'll read it to you so that you can follow along. On the left side, it says, worship in person before the fall without bloody sacrifices through individual obedience. Who is that, church? That's Adam, isn't it? And then we move from the fall into chapter four and worship is with sacrifices, but not geographically confined to one location. Come on, you've read your Bibles. He's here, he offers a sacrifice. He's here, he offers a sacrifice. And wherever he meets with God, what does he do? He builds an altar and worships the Lord. Then we get introduced to the tabernacle and what happens? Worship becomes localized. Everyone tracking? Worship becomes localized. And wherever the tabernacle is, is where you worship the Lord. Then Solomon, up here in the pink, Solomon builds a temple and it's worshiped with sacrifices. And it's confined to the temple in Jerusalem. There are some minor exceptions. I get that. But for the most part, it all happens at the temple in Jerusalem. Then you get to this new dispensation that we talked about. Worship is without animal sacrifices and is no longer confined to the temple nor in Jerusalem. And then ultimately on the right-hand side in blue, and I picked blue so that you would make the connection going back to this blue right here on the left side, worship will occur forever in the new heaven and new earth without sacrifices. Can we agree on that? So the question mark is where the disagreement is. The question mark is where the disagreement is. The question represents the debate concerning whether there's a future period of time when one biological priesthood will return to slaughtering sacrifices at Ezekiel's temple on behalf of themselves and others to make atonement. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. This is verse-by-verse ministry. So you're Googling this. You're reading about it. You're educating yourself. This says, why is there a temple in the millennial kingdom? Who builds it? So you read this article. You're on the internet, and you're reading it as a good student of the Bible. And you read, although the Bible doesn't explicitly state who actually builds the temple, we see through evidence in Scripture that this temple is supernaturally built by a renewed, believing Israel that desires to fervently worship their Father in heaven. 
What do you notice is missing? John? A reference. I mean, you don't get, just get to say scripture. You guys are good Bereans. What's Bereans noticed for? They search the scriptures to see whether those things are so true. If you say something like, well, scripture teaches, what should you be able to do at that moment? Chapter and verse, right? You should be able to quote it. The problem is there is no command to build it. No one is ever told to build this temple. There's not a single verse that's ever said to build this temple. You can read cover to cover from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, and you will not find a single Bible reference to build this temple. Now, what is told is tell them about the vision you saw. Describe it to them in detail. Make the children of Israel excited about a larger, greater temple. That's all they're told. These are my issues with the physical Ezekiel's temple. Number one, the Bible does not tell anyone to build it. Number two, there are no vertical measurements anywhere in it. Imagine building something that's a 3D structure without not one vertical measurement. Go look for yourself. How are we going back to God dwelling in a physical temple when he dwells in us? Was Christ the ultimate and final atonement for all sin or not? Does the priesthood of all believers come to an end with a return to the Levitical priesthood in the third temple? Are we returning to physical, localized place where God is worshipped, bringing Christ's words in John 4.21 to an end? Doesn't this effectively bring an end to the new covenant? Because if you read through Ezekiel 40 through 48, you'll need the Mosaic law in order to keep these commandments. Anytime you hear someone say, no, they're not for atonement, they're a memorial, please inform them that that word memorial is not in Ezekiel. The word is atonement. Let me give you some ideas of what I'm talking about. Let's start with the words in Ezekiel. The word David, does it mean David or is it King Jesus? Let's take the word leaves right down here from the bottom. Is leaves leaves or is it representative of God's healing power? In other words, what I'm asking is, do I have to actually physically eat leaves? Or on the leaves on the tree that grows by the river, a symbol of what? God's power to heal. By the way, those of you who know your Bibles know that this tree is in Revelation. How about this idea of uncircumcised in heart? Is this physical or is this spiritual? All right, so y'all are going to agree that this is spiritual. So now what's spiritual and what's physical then? Who's going to be the one that decides? You're going to go line by line. For example, the priest after Zadok. Are we talking about full-blown DNA? Think about what I'm saying to you. Every division of ethnicity is torn down in Galatians. There's neither Jew nor... Gentile, there's neither rich nor poor. There's neither male nor female. So does Paul tear down every racial division and then in the millennial kingdom they all get resurrected? I'm trying to show you some things that aren't talked about. I was never challenged with these things. No one ever taught me to think about these things. You're reading books, you're reading websites, you're reading blogs. I want you to know how to be discerning. 
nor in Jerusalem. Should I regard or should I understand Jesus' words with regard to length of time? Do you think that the most plain natural reading to be it comes to an end or it continues? A, from a time forward, bloody sacrifices will no longer be offered as worship in Jerusalem indefinitely. From a time forward, bloody sacrifices will no longer be offered as worship in Jerusalem until a new temple is rebuilt. I choose A. Here's my question to you this morning. Should the reality that there is not one single New Testament verse about building of a temple in a future kingdom with bloody sacrifices inform my theology? Let me show what I mean. In the ESV, there are 114 references to the temple. This is not hard. You can do this at home today. You take blue letter Bible and you type in the word temple. It'll populate all the verses for you. Get out a yellow legal pad, which is what I did. And you know, I just read every one of them. And I organized it. It's real simple. Look on the the chart at the bottom. There are two references in the end of Revelation to no temple being in God's city. There are eight references to the temple in heaven right now. There are two references to a temple during the tribulation period. The church is the temple in Ephesians, a temple of man of sin in 2 Thessalonians. So I'm sure that's not God's temple. There's a temple service in the Old Testament. Paul uses an example, grabs it to the forward. There's an idol's temple in 2 Thessalonians. Corinthians, where they're getting meat from. I know that's not the temple of God. Believers are called the temple seven times. Jesus' body is called a temple five times. And then there are 85 references to the actual physical temple in Jerusalem between Matthew and Acts. My point to you this morning is you can do this yourself. You don't need a seminary degree to do what I just did. What do you do, church? You look at every reference, study for yourself, and say, is there anything in the New Testament that points me to a future temple, or do I ground my reality only in the Old Testament? Do you see what I'm asking this morning? In other words, do I let the New Testament influence my theology, or am I content building it only from the Old Testament? I hope you're not content building it only from the Old Testament. What would the point of giving us a New Testament be if we don't use it to influence our theology? Can we at least agree on that this morning? That the New Testament should inform my thinking. And by the way, you can do it in the NASB. There's 120 references to the NASB. And you can go through the same process. You can do it in the King James. You can do it in that Bible. You'll come up with nearly the same results. The New Covenant theology says, yes, the New Testament should influence it. Dispensational says, no, in this case, the temple in Ezekiel must be built. It was given to Israel. The priesthood after Zadok must happen. And we are going back to bloody sacrifices for 1,000 years. Let me wrap it up by asking you to turn to Acts 15. I'm going to take you a different direction completely for just a moment to show you a parallel. Acts 15. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bible this time so that you can see exactly what I'm talking about. All right, what's in Acts 15? It's the Jerusalem Council. Church, this is a really big deal. We don't grasp it. I'm going to give you an illustration to hopefully get the perspective right for you. The early church in Acts chapter 2 was all Jews. I mean, just all Jews. 
I want you to imagine for a moment, and please indulge me for just a moment, because I'm trying to get you to understand what a big deal this is. I want you to imagine that you've grown up in a white church your whole life. There's never been a black person that has showed up in your church ever in your entire life. Every Sunday school class, every youth group, every worship service, there's only been white people in your church. And on a Sunday morning, a black person shows up, comes forward, gets saved, and is wholly committed to Christ. And you're like, wow. And they're on fire for Jesus. And then the next week, there are 10 black people that show up, and now you have 11 in your church. And the following week, there's 200 black people in your church. They are sold out to Jesus. Well, that church, that church is how it would have been to be in a Jewish church and have the first Gentile added, the second Gentile added, 10 Gentiles added, 100 Gentiles added. And before you know it, you're saying there are more Gentiles than there are Jews. And so what happens at the Jerusalem Council? They say, what do all these Gentiles have to do? Do they have to get circumcised? Do they have to keep the law? How much of the law do they have to keep? Come on, y'all follow where I'm at with this? Because prior to that, we're all Jews. We're already circumcised. We already keep the law. It's part of our DNA. You're having a hard time getting us to stop keeping the law. You bring all these Gentiles in and know nothing about the Torah. And so the Jerusalem Council gets together and they decide, what are we going to expect out of these Gentiles? What are we going to tell them they have to do? Are you all following me so far? Not ahead if you're following me. All right. So let's pick up the dialogue in verse number 13. Let's pick up the dialogue in verse 13. I've got six minutes left. I'm going to use them wisely. After they finish speaking in verse 13, James stands up and he says, Brothers, listen to me. Peter, Simeon, Peter has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name. Peter is using Old Testament language. This is Exodus 19:5 language. God is now saving Gentiles. He's calling them to himself. Israel, the true Israel, is now having Gentiles being added to it. This is now a mixed ethnicity of a church. Look with me in verse 15. And with these words of the prophets, he's referring to Amos, agree just as is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. Wow. Isn't that interesting language? God, in saving Gentiles, is rebuilding the tent of David that has fallen. All right, first question, literal or figurative? Because here's literal. There's your literal interpretation. So I don't think literal is the way to go. Can we agree that it's not a literal tent? All right. So the figurative house of David or tent of David is being rebuilt. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all Gentiles, all ethnos, that's the Greek word, who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. 
What is going on here? This is amazing. Let me try to make it amazing to you. The physical kingdom of David, you know, the ownership of the palace and the boundaries and all this physical stuff is now described as a tent that's fallen. And as Gentiles are getting saved and it's getting larger and larger, he stands up and says, this is actually God rebuilding the fallen tent of David. Do you see what he just did? He moved from physical to what? Spiritual. Just like that. You would have thought in Amos, a physical tent of structure. He said, no, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the rebuilding of the kingdom of David through the salvation of who? Gentiles. This is gigantic. Now, let me, let me pause and do my very best to teach you something in the last three minutes. If you were to decide to go in your Bible and you say, you know what, I want to go back and read this Amos reference. You might have a little footnote like a number one or something. And you turn back to Amos and you read it. You're going to be surprised at what you see. Here's Amos 9, 12. It says that they may possess the remnant of Eden. And you read in your uh, Acts that, they, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And then you read the word nations in the Hebrew in the Old Testament. And you read the word Gentiles. And you're like, wait a minute. How did that happen? How is it that diff- it's such, so different? Well, let me show you. On the top screen, I know I've got two minutes left with you, is the LXX. It's called the Septuagint. What's the Septuagint, church? It's the Greek translation of what? Of the Old Testament. And here's how they translated the word Eden right there. You see it? How they translate it? Anthropos. You know the word anthropos. It's the word we get the study of anthro what? Anthropology, anthropology. What's the study of anthropology? Come on, I'm taking you back to high school, college. It's the study of what? Humans, mankind. So was James quoting from the Hebrew Tanakh or the Septuagint? Clearly from the Septuagint. Look on the screen and we'll be done. Can you see how similar that Greek is? Now you don't have to read Greek to see how similar it is. The blue line is exactly the same. The yellow line is exactly the same. The red line is exactly the same. And the green line is exactly the same. It's nearly a perfect quotation of what? The Septuagint. So the next time you're reading your Bible and you're like, this doesn't, it's not even close. I went back to Amos. I went back to Isaiah. I went back to one of those. And you're like, it's not even close. Consider for a moment that the close is in the Septuagint not in the Hebrew. Now, why would they do that? Let's pause and ask that question. Why would he quote from the Septuagint instead of the Hebrew? It's what they were using, and it's what they had. It's what they would have been most familiar with, because by the time you get to this day, John, most don't read Hebrew anymore. They read the Greek Old Testament because they know the language Greek. They don't know the language Hebrew. So where would you quote from if you were talking to a bunch of Greek-speaking Gentiles. Would you quote from a Hebrew Bible that they can't read, or would you quote from a Greek Bible that they can read? You'd quote from a Greek Bible. The example that I'm showing you here is real simple. 
God is presently rebuilding the house of David right now. How? Every time somebody gets saved, they become a son or daughter of Christ or the greater David and get included into the Davidic realm or kingdom. That's the general idea. Father in heaven, thank you for our time this morning. I know that it was very complex and deep. I pray, God, that you'd use the recording and the opportunity to watch the sermon again and listen to it and contemplate what we're saying in Jesus' name. Amen.